Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein, and you're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where I discuss value investing, rational analysis, and break down the processes, principles, and mental models of business owners and managers. Today we have on Andrew Walker, who runs the blog, Yet Another Value Blogger, and he also is the Head of Research and Portfolio Manager at Rangeley Capital. I have been a big fan of his work for quite a few years now. Before we get into the interview, I just want to go over two of our sponsors uh, for today that I think are highly appealing for other value investors. So the first one is uh, Ticker, T-I-K-R.com. And this episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional quality investment research tools to the individual investor. They are powered by S&P Global Capital IQ, has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financials, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership, transcript news, much more. Um, This is something I use personally for myself. I had actually asked the uh, founder of Ticker if you'd be willing to sponsor the show because it's a product that I love so much. So they have a free beta on Ticker and you can use my beta code, which is Ticker, T-I-K-R.com slash intelligent if you guys are in the car and you have other value investor friends that have ticker and you don't remember that you can just ask them for an invite code and it's not a big deal so ticker.com awesome product they're also coming out with a screener right now which is in uh, beta testing right now and I, i've had a sneak peek of it and it's pretty cool the second uh sponsor is actually my uh, podcast host podbean they're probably one of the easiest ways to create your own podcast i use podbean myself as i said to host the intelligent investing podcast and also my new podcast the eric schlein podcast which is to my knowledge one of the only if not the only podcast on ontology in the world so if you're interested in ontology human consciousness check out the eric schlein podcast as well and you can download the free podbean podcast app to start record publish your own very podcast in minutes. They provide everything you need to run your podcast. You can literally record published episodes directly from your app on the phone. And that's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N podcast app. So check that out. And then the last thing before we start is I just came out with a book a few months ago, Principles of Power, the Art and Wisdom of Badassery. As some of you may know, I, other than as an investor, I also work with companies on empowering them, making a difference to them, altering our culture. The USC did a study. The average company that does this work has an increase in profits of three to 500% within 24 months. So it's something that I hope to be applying to activism, ideally with microcaps in the future. So if you are someone who is an activist and has a large position in a microcap stock, or you're a manager in a microcap stock and would like some support, I would love to help you out if I can. And if you want to get that book, there's some of the work that we do in the book. And I'll put it this way. We put McKinsey to shame. So without ado, Andrew Walker. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I just heard you put McKinsey to shame. I started off at McKinsey. Yeah. Anyway, so what was it like? What was it like at McKinsey, actually? Oh, I, I loved it. All, all the people I worked with there were, were super sharp. Yeah, it, it was super sharp. It, it was pretty intense. I remember one day I, I was I was trying to plan a meeting for me and the like partner on the deal with us. And I tried to schedule it for Friday morning at 8 a.m. And he was like, listen, I'm on the road Sunday night through Thursday, late night. Like Friday morning's the one time I have to uh, go drop my kids off at school and spend some time with them. Do you mind if we don't do it then? And I was like, oh, shit, this is... Uh, it's a tough life and it can get tougher as you go up, but it's really cool. You're doing real deals. You're working at the highest levels of the corporate world. It it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And the people I met were super sharp, super friendly. Don't have a bad thing to say about any of them. 
Oh. Well, maybe one or two of them, but most okay. of them, I don't know. Yeah, it. we won't say anything bad about those people on here. So anyway, I'm a huge fan of your work, huge fan of your blog, and I wanted to have you on the show. There's been some news around Pershing uh, Square and, and, and Bill Ackman's SPAC. Why don't you share a little bit of background on, on what's been going on there? Whew. All right. Yeah. Look, I think we started talking last week about doing this podcast appearance. And when we were talking last week, you said this podcast is all about value investing. When we were talking about last week, Pershing was just a cash shell. People were hoping they would announce a deal one day. It was really just an event and a bet on an unknowable bet on the future. But last Thursday, Pershing came out and confirmed that they were in discussions to buy 10% of Universal Music, UMG, from Vivendi for about a $42 billion valuation. The deal on a headline, I think it's a really complex deal. After I, I posted a couple articles on it, and after I posted one, I was thinking about it, and I was like, look, all the moving parts in this piece, in this deal, remind me a little bit of... Uh, Liberty Media back in the you can be a stock market gene, genius days when they were doing these quirky rights offerings and hiding value. I don't think it's quite that because a lot of the value is going to be in a bet on Bill Ackman's ability to deliver good deals in the future. And we can talk about all that, but it's a really complex deal. It's a really interesting deal. And, and, just, I, and just for listeners, for those who don't know about Liberty Media, that's run by John Malone. And he had a whole history of starting with TCI doing very complex financial engineering, probably the greatest media investor ever. And there's a great book on him uh, called Cable Cowboy. Have you read that book? Oh yeah, actually it's funny. I read that book. Oh, I don't know, but for a while I read it. And I think when I read it, the takeaways weren't the right ones for me the first time I read it because- well, we're, we're curious, what were your takeaways from the book? In the early seventies, Cable Cowboy, he's literally a cowboy because they are building out the cable industry. And the cable industry, when you're laying that pipe and laying that fiber, it's very expensive. And TCI for years was always on the verge of bankruptcy. And it was difficult. And when I read it, my takeaway is, oh shit, like you can't invest in a John Malone company. They're always on the verge of bankruptcy. The John Malone of the late seventies and early eighties is a little bit different than the John Malone of the late 2000s, early 2010s or early 2020s, whenever we are today. But yeah, look, he's, he's brilliant. I think that the outsiders, the book, the outsiders, where they profile eight great CEOs who have really beat the market over the time. He's featured in there and William Thorndike, he did a podcast and they said, hey, if you could choose any of the outsiders, who would you choose? And he said, John Malone, he just delivers the intellectual rigor. He can operate. A lot of the outsiders were more capital allocators and John Malone actually ran the largest cable company in the world. He can operate, he can allocate capital and he's done that for four decades. John Malone is, it's about as good as it gets. And yeah. One of the reasons he's so famous among investors is because he's so good with, uh, he's an engineer by background, because he's so good at engineering and structuring, a lot of his deals come really complex. And if you dig through that complexity, you can find a lot of value. And to bring it back to Pershing Square Taunting, this deal, I don't think it's as complex as a first blush is, but it is complex. There's a lot of moving parts. And if you can nail the moving parts down correctly, I do think there's probably, if there's not value hiding in place right now, there will be value hiding in place somewhere in the future. Yeah. Now I know for some of you listeners who are pretty sophisticated, you're pretty familiar, you know, at least with the basics of the situation, but for those who are new to the show or new to Pershing Square Taunting, explain what it is because it's a little bit of a different structure than your typical SPAC. Yeah. So let's back up. Over the past 18 months, SPACs have become a, well, for a while they were the hottest vehicle on Wall Street and now we're like in a SPAC bear market. They've done a few, full manic euphoria and then panic cycle inside of three months. But a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition vehicle. And you and I could go out and raise one, right? We'd go, we'd raise $200 million and then we'd put that money in a trust. We'd go try and find a company to buy. When we found a company who agreed, oh yeah, I'll take your $200 million and I'll go public through you. We take that deal and we would go to our shareholders and we'd say, hey guys, good news. We've got a great deal. What do you think? And if the shareholders vote yes, the $200 million will go to the company. 
And if the shareholders vote no, the deal will fail and the shareholders will get their $200 million back or $195 million of the deal could vote yes. And then $5 million, of the dollars, $5 million could vote no. The $5 million would get their money back. The $195 million would roll in the deal. But that's the basics of a SPAC, right? Now, SPACs, they've been around for years and they've got a very bad reputation. They Until last year, they had a very bad reputation. SPACs have the incentive structure is awful because if you and I sponsored a SPAC, $200 million SPAC, we'd put up about $5 million to sponsor the SPAC. If a SPAC deal went through, we would own 20% of the target company equity. So if we took $200 million that our shareholders gave us and we bought a $200 million company and it was a value neutral deal, we'd own 20%. Our 5 million just became $40 million. Where did that $40 million come? It actually comes from the shareholders, right? So their $200 million has become $160 million. Now, we could overcome that if we could find a deal where we bought a $300 million company for $200 million if we created value in that way. But we're going to get 20% of the upside. So we've got a really great structure. And in fact, it's so good. If we can't find a deal, we lose our $5 million. But let's say we go buy a $100 million company with our $200 million and somehow get our shareholders to vote it through. Yes. Our $5 million has become $20 million, 20% of $100 million. Shareholders, $200 million has become $80 million, right? Not only did they lose 50%, but we took $20 million. So we made four times our money. Shareholders lost 60% of their money. So yes. the incentive structures is awful. We are incentivized to get a deal done no matter what. So Pershing Square Taunting is a SPAC, but it's unique in a SPAC. First, it's unique because of its size. It raised $4 billion. No other SPAC has raised more than a billion dollars. And on top of the $4 billion, actually Pershing Square committed to invest at least a billion dollars alongside of whatever deal they were. So they were working with $5 billion in cash. That's huge. They could go after companies that no other SPAC could even dream of going after. That's one. Number two, Pershing was a taunting structure. A taunting structure is extremely rare. I'm only aware of one other SPAC that went with a taunting structure. That SPAC is Starbird Value. The ticker is SVAC if people are curious. But a taunting structure, in a normal SPAC, you invest and you get a unit. And a unit has a share and a warrant. And the share and the warrant break apart. And you as an investor can wait for them to find a deal. When they announce a deal, you look. If you want, you can redeem your share and you can get your cash back. Or you can sell your share on the open market or you could hold it. But no matter what, you got to keep that warrant, right? It's a quote unquote free warrant. Pershing Square Taunting was different. They had a bunch of warrants that were not detachable from the share. The only way you could get those warrants was if you did not redeem your shares. If you voted yes for whatever deal he came with, you would get shares in the new company and you could keep your taunting warrants. And on top of that, anyone who did redeem their shares, so let's say you and I are the only shareholders. You redeem your shares, I keep my shares. Not only do I keep my shares and I get my taunting warrants, I get to split the taunting warrants that you forfeited when you redeemed your shares. Me and all of the other people who don't redeem, we get to split those. So it had this taunting structure that was very unique. And then the third thing about Pershing Square that was unique was uh, the incentive structure, right? Instead of taking the typical sponsor promote, which we just talked about how bad the incentive structure was, Bill Ackman invested, He would, the only way he invested into this was the forward purchase agreement where he'd buy at the same terms as the IPO buyers. And he agreed to buy long dated warrants that struck at $24 per share to buy the to buy stock. And he bought those warrants at fair market value. That's how they covered all the IPO expenses and everything. And that's different because the only way Ackman can make that money is if the stock actually goes up, right? In the old scenario, we talked about where you buy a $200 million company, it's worth 100 million. The sponsors would make four times their money and minority shareholders would lose 60% of their money. In this scenario, let's say he did a deal and the stock got cut in half. Shareholders lost 50% of their money. 
Ackman actually loses more than 50% of his money because he invests at the same terms as you and those far out of the money warrants that he bought are so far out of the money that they basically lost all its value. So best incentive alignment of any SPAC, best structure of any SPAC, and unique in terms of they could go after targets no one else could reasonably go after. So those were the three reasons I was so bullish on Pershing. Plus, Ackman obviously has a great history as an investor. So you were buying alongside a guy who I, I think better than you and me sponsoring a SPAC, he could create some value. So that's an overview of just the Pershing Tontine structure and why I was so interested in it. Very interesting. And then so this past week, there's been some interesting news. So break this transaction down for us. Yeah, so uh, Pershing is going to buy, they finally found their deal. He's apparently been working on it since November. And the deal is to buy 10% of Universal Music Group, which is the largest music label in the world. They're going to buy 10% of that at about a $42 billion valuation. And then it's a really complex deal. I'd encourage anybody, look, nothing I say is investing advice. I'd encourage everybody, go read the primary source if you want, but I, I can give an overview. It's a complex deal because most SPACs, we talked about them, they go by a whole company. And not, and just want to say also, not yeah. only is nothing here investment advice, but if there's a number that's off or something like that, Andrew Walker is not responsible for that. So do your own due diligence, you know, look at the filings yourself and make your own decision. I I appreciate that because my numbers might be way off. And by the way, this deal was announced Friday and to skip ahead a little bit, it leaked to the media. So they haven't even signed the definitive agreement and they've only put out a press release. We haven't seen the merger document. Right. We haven't seen most SPACs when they announce a deal, they do a big merger presentation. We haven't seen any of that because we haven't seen the, they haven't signed the deal. They have to wait for Vivendi shareholders to approve this deal before they can sign it. So you and I are talking in a little bit of an information vacuum. Okay. I've done a lot of work. I, I think we can make a lot of reasonable assumptions. I think everything we say is going to be 95% correct, but we don't know for sure yet. So anyway, Friday, they announced the deal to buy 10%. And most SPACs, they announce a deal and they just go buy a company and the company goes publicly traded. Well, Pershing, because of the way this deal is structured and because they had so much in cash, they're buying Universal and they're only using, they had about $5.6 billion available to them. They're only using about $4.1 billion of that cash. Pershing had $20 per share in trust. The stock trades a little above that, but let's just use that 20. Of that 20, $14.75 of it is going to go to buying Universal Music. So you'll get $14.75% in cost of Universal Music. And then the other five twenty-five is going to be spun out to shareholders and it's going to be almost a it's going to be a cash shell it's going to be a stack with no redemption date no nothing it'll be a cash shell controlled by ackman with 1.5 billion dollars they'll go try and do another deal so that's the first complexity it's this weird split off second and it's, it's really and it's really weird I, I don't know other situations like this i've never Are seen there? okay before. In fact, I, I, I joked a few times, I tweeted this at Bill Ackman. There was a spat called Spinning Eagle in February. And these okay. are the guys who did uh, their last, their prior spat had done DraftKings. So that spat was a massive, they came up Spinning Eagle, or it was going to be Spinning Eagle, it turned to Soaring Eagle, SRNG is the ticker. They were coming public in February at the absolute height of the spat market. Every SPAC was trading 20% above trust. The buzziest SPACs were trading 50% above trust. You'd announce a deal and your SPAC would double in day. So they were coming at the, people were just throwing money at SPACs and they came public and they said, we're going to do spinning eagle. And what's going to happen is we'll raise three, $4 billion and we're going to go find a deal. And let's say we find a $2 billion company we want to do with that deal. We'll take two of the $4 billion in cash, buy that company, and we'll spin the next 2 billion into a new SPAC. And that spec will go and try to find deals. So because of this structure, we can try and buy multiple companies at the same time. We've got this long life. It was a really unique structure. SEC shut it down. I think they shut it down because they were getting their, um, A, the SEC is probably a little skeptical of the SPAC bubble, but they were just getting their new commissioner in. And this was a very novel structure. And I think they said, hey, 
if you want to get this done, you need to come to us six months down the road when we've got a full commission to review this in place. If you want to get something done now, you got to go with the normal SPAC. So they did normal SPAC SRNG. But the SEC previously has not allowed this type of, I've got a SPAC, I spin off into a permanent SPAC structure. So because of Pershing Remain Co., that cash shell that will have $1.5 billion, Ackman is almost backing into that structure. Now, I've talked to uh, several lawyers. I've had friends who've talked to lawyers, stuff. Basically, all of them say, look, I think the SEC is going to be okay with this structure. And if you look at the lawyers who are advising Ackman, I bet you they're pretty confident. They're yeah. So yeah. I think the SEC will be okay with it, but it, it's just a question, right? It's a curiosity. They've turned this down before. And so, I wonder if they've had discussions with them even prior. I don't want to, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but to speculate based on the law firms that are involved here, I would be pretty surprised if there was a $40 billion enterprise value merger involving a $1.5 billion cash shell spinning out on the back end. I'd be pretty surprised if they hadn't at least gotten a, yeah, this is going to be okay. Right. That's what I would think. Of course, I don't know, but yeah, that's what I would think. Anyway, so go ahead. But so it's a, it's a very unique structure because of that. And then the other thing is alongside this, he's doing something called a spark, a special acquisition rights company where he's just going to give every shareholder right now who doesn't redeem, he's going to give them a right to buy a new SPAC basically. And it's actually not a new SPAC. It's curious, right? It's just a, it's basically a call option and Ackman Pershing Square is going to back a lot of it, but it's basically a call option where if every person gets a right exercises that they could raise five and a half billion dollars on this. So he's going to go negotiate with the company and say, Hey, I've got all these shareholders who will put $20 in once I announce a deal it'll come to five and a half billion dollars. Let's negotiate a deal. So it's very similar to a SPAC, except for a SPAC has already raised the money, whereas the Spark, they'll announce a deal and then they'll ask you for the money. But in the SPAC, they've already raised the money, but you can have the money back once they announce the deal. So yeah. it's effectively the same, except one, they get the money on the back end, one, they get the money on the forward end. It's just so interesting because we've never seen anything like this before. So right. I've just said, the reason I was interested in Pershing originally was because we'd never seen anything of that size. We'd never seen anything with that structure. We'd never seen anything with that incentive alignment. And now I'm interested in Pershing because all of that still applies, but we've never seen a Spinco Remainco cash shell come out. We've never seen a spark before. And UMG, it was buried within Vivendi. Now it's going to be publicly traded. So there's just a lot of really interesting moving parts here. And I think I hit on everything. We haven't talked about the Tanti Morris, but at this part, they're a pretty small part of the story. So I don't think we need to, but uh, tell me, what did I miss? Do you want to dive into Yeah, UMG? well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting too, because maybe a few months ago, there was this interesting Bill Ackman tweet where he hinted that a current a Tanti holders would, would get access to a, a new SPAC. So it could have been hinting at something like this. Yeah, so he did. And me and a lot of my friends were commenting on this. We were wondering if the market was properly incorporating because he, this was, again, I think he tweeted this in February at the height of SPAC mania, but Pershing was $30 per share against the $20 trust at the time he tweeted this. And the next day the stock didn't move. And me and my friend said, oh my gosh, like that is actually a lot of value because if he, let's just say, PSTH won the original SPAC. It mm -hmm. traded for a 50% premium to trust. Yeah. He did a deal and he spun out a right that gave you access to his next SPAC at trust value. And that trust, that SPAC was going to trade 50% above trust value. Right now, there's a lot of assumptions there. And obviously, PSTH came back. But if he, sure. that was true at the time, we were looking and saying, hey, that's something that's worth $10 per share of value. And the market hasn't adjusted at all for it. Now, the SPAC market came back in, PSTH came back in. But eventually he did honor that word. Not only do you get one SPAC right offering, you get two, right? Because right. you get Remco, though that's money that's already out there. He's spinning out. But then you get Spark as well. So he is giving you that. And he's confirmed further that Spark 
If you're a shareholder of Spark, the rights he's spinning out, after they do a deal, he's going to spin out the rights to Spark 2 from that. So you can get this chain of constant every year or two, Bill Ackman does a $5 billion deal. And because you own Spark 1, you get the rights to Spark 2, you get the rights to Spark 3. So you get this chain of Sparks going. It's so interesting. Yeah, so let's talk about this, the deal and what he's buying and Vivendi. Let's go into all of that. Give us a little breakdown of, of, of that deal. Yeah, so he's buying Vivendi is controlled by Vincent Boyer. I, I never know how to say his last name. I don't, I don't know either. You, you read, it's so funny because I've been reading the company for years. But when you read, you don't, so I, I believe it's Boyer, Boyer. I'm not sure, but. Well, it's like I've been reading about you for years. And I didn't know what your company was pronounced. <laughs> there you go. It's Rangley for everyone who doesn't know. But I get yeah. Rangley. I used to say Rangley. That's not yeah. in my head. I would say Rangley. So Vincent Boyer, who's known as a legendary investor in France. He's one of the few activists in France. He's got a, a great track record. His holding company, Boyer, controls Vivendi. They own about 30% of Vivendi. And then Vivendi, in turn, they used to own 100% of Universal Music. They've sold 20% of that to Tencent, but they still own 80%. Vivendi is doing this big spin-out where they're just take typical US-type spin-out. They take the Universal shares they own, and they just spin them out to shareholders. So one day, you own one share of Vivendi. The next day, you own one share of Vivendi and one share of Universal Music or whatever the ratios work out to. But so they're doing that. And Ackman, Pershing is going to buy right before the spinoff. They're going to buy 10% of Universal directly from Vivendi. And then Vivendi will spin off their remaining 70% to shareholders. So that's the overview of the transaction. I think a lot of people, I'll say, I think a lot of shareholders were disappointed. It's a complicated transaction. They're buying a minority stake. I think a lot of people were hoping they'd do something like buy into Stripe and take Stripe public and be the reverse backdoor for Stripe or Starlink or names that I saw thrown around a lot. But one of the things I like here is Ackman's incentives are aligned with shareholders. And I'm not saying Starlink or Stripe aren't great businesses, but Ackman, you look at his history, he wants a business that he can competently predict the future, almost similar to Warren Buffett. Yeah. He wants a business where a stock market would shut down for 10 years. He'd wake up 10 years from now, the business is going to be worth more. It throws off lots of cash flows. Starlink and Stripe, I'm sure they'll probably be worth more in 10 years, but you don't have that degree of certainty. These are startups, techie. There's a lot, there's lots of risks to them. A Stripe maybe less so nowadays, but still lots of risk. UMG, they own the Beatles catalog. People will be listening to the Beatles in 10 years. Will people be listening to Taylor Swift? All of those. Yeah. So you can reasonably say they're probably going to be worth more than 10 years. It's a great business, all this type of stuff. He's buying into it. So I think that's the overview of the deal. I'm happy to go anywhere you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Let's talk about the valuation and what you could potentially happen once the deal goes through. Yeah. So the valuation, again, we don't have the, he hasn't put out the SPAC deck yet. So we don't know exactly the structure, exactly the valuation. One of the reasons SPACs got so hot earlier this year is a SPAC is basically an IPO, right? It's a company that was private that's coming public. But one of the reasons SPACs got so hot is in an IPO, if you give a forward projection and then you subsequently miss that projection, that's securities fraud, right? You're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. In a SPAC, because the SPAC was already public and technically the they're buying whatever company that they're merging with to take public. In a merger, you can get forward-looking projections. So one of the reasons SPACs got so hot is they could get forward-looking projections. And you saw a lot of companies, I don't want to say abusing that, but they took a lot of leeway with their yeah. forward-looking projections. So Pershing, because they've only announced we're in late-stage discussions, Vivendi shareholders have to approve selling 10%. The deal will probably be signed June 22nd or 23rd, and we'll get a, a full-out roadshow with all the financials and everything then. So we don't know the exacts, but we can... Ballpark. I think I think Ackman and Pershing Tontine are paying 
20 to 22 times forward EBITDA for UMG is about the numbers. So if I ballpark it, UMG is about two times the size of Warner Music Group, which is the number three player. Warner Music trades for about 20 to 22 times forward EBITDA. So they're buying UMG at a similar valuation to Warner Music, but I think UMG deserves a big premium. It's a superior company. It, it deserves a big premium because it's bigger and there are returns to scale in this business. It's got a better catalog. I mentioned the Beatles, U2, faster growing catalog. I believe a couple of years ago, I think that of the top 20 artists streaming worldwide, 19 of them were on UMG. Last year, I know for a fact of the top five streaming albums worldwide, four of them were on UMG. So they're bigger, they're faster growing, their catalog's better, and it's owning those big things. Number one of the top 10 catalog last year, CD last year, that's going to have legs way into the future more so than the number 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever. And they get paid when songs get played. So having legs in the future is a big deal. Better catalog. Oh, and WMG is a controlled company. They have dual share class, only 25% of the company. And those are the, the low vote shares publicly trade. The rest are controlled. So you, know, you slap all that together and you say, oh, Warner probably has a discount because it's a controlled company. UMG would trade at a premium because it's bigger and it traded at an even bigger premium because they're growing faster and have better assets. I think Ackman buying UMG at 20 times EBITDA, I think that's going to prove to be relative to WMG. I think it's going to prove to be a steal. And then if I just backed up and I said, hey, this is a market dominant company that will be making money for years, great assets, great catalogs. It's a tax on the entertainment business. You think every time you play a TikTok video that has a music in it, the companies take a cut. Everybody loves Peloton. I love Peloton right now. I'm obsessed yeah. with Peloton. Uh, Peloton plays music in the back of the classes. Guess what? UMG gets a cut of that. Everybody, as the world gets richer, there's more time to watch TV shows, movies, all that. Guess what they have? Music in the background. They get a cut of that. If you think about music spend per capita in the US, I believe is down about 50% from the peaks in the early 90s. And mm-hmm. that's because of piracy, all this sort of stuff. But I think that's interesting because Today, you and I, we probably listen to more music than we would have in the 90s because we're always walking around. I'm going to hold up my phone for those who are listening on podcasts. We're always walking around with a portable Walkman. When I'm walking the streets of New York, I'm listening to music. So I think more music is getting consumed. Right now, they're monetizing it less. But the fact that 20 years ago, they monetize it more suggests to me there might be more upside for this going forward. So I think it's a great business, great catalog, great visibility, great economics. Ackman in the press release called it maybe the best business he's ever seen. I don't know if I'm quite there. This is a great business. I think when this comes out at 20 times EBITDA, value investors are going to be all over it. Growth investors are going to be all over it. Garpy investors are going to be all over it. Inflation investors are going to be all over it. Because by the way, you don't have to pay another dime for the Beatles. And if you go into inflationary- It's just the royalty on that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's a lot of things like, and I think 20 times EBITDA is going to prove to be a really good price. He's buying it at 42. Last year, when Vivendi started talking about spinning out, I, some analysts said this is worth 50, this is worth 60. One analyst even said this is worth 100 billion. I wouldn't be surprised if in six months, UMG standalone and trading for 55 billion on its way to 75 billion in four years or something. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Now, explain to me for listeners out there, you said that there's some cost advantage of being, of being larger in this business. Can you go into that a little bit more on why they have a better moat by being larger than the other two? Yeah, you know, I think it's stuff that your listeners would be familiar with. So there's going to be a little bit of scale, right? Yet you have to have all the infrastructure, all the IT and everything. And you can manage that. You can manage that managing a thousand artists, pretty much the same as you can do 10,000 artists. But I think more of the scale is going to come in like 
A, negotiation with Spotify, right? In, in a nuclear event where Warner Music, who let's just say they own 20% of the industry, if they pull their catalog, then Spotify's lost 20% of their catalog. In yeah. a nuclear event where UMG pulls, let's say they own 30% of the industry, they've lost 30%. Losing 20% is a lot, is not as bad as losing 30%. So you probably exactly. get a little bit of extra negotiating power. But I think the real thing is in discovery, right? Because if you're a bigger company, you've got just a little bit of extra door on the relationships. You go and you talk to a movie, you talk to movie studios, you probably got a little bit of extra where, hey, do you want to use a Fall Out Boy song, which is owned by uh, Universal Music, or do you want to use a U2 song? And maybe just because you're a little bigger, you can push a couple more to the U2. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that their scale is a an advantage that no one can overcome, even though right. the big three have been the big three for years. It adds a little bit. It does add a little bit. They're going to be able to get slightly higher margins. And you see this right. in the financials. They'll get slightly higher margins, slightly better access to the bigger groups by being the biggest company. Okay. That was a, that was a beautiful explanation. We have listeners who are extremely advanced value investors. Then we have listeners who are just getting into investing. So I, I try to walk that line of the full perfect. scope. And I think you explained that uh, perfectly. Anything else you think I'm missing in terms of things I could ask you about it? Or I think you explained the, the general outline pretty well. Not to pitch my own stuff, but it is a complicated story. I've put out like four pieces in the past week on right. Pershing Square. Last week I was saying, I thought UMG was the number three most likely target for Pershing to buy before the deal came out, which I've gotten some credit for that. And I'll have to say a friend mentioned it to me. I mean, you, yeah, you, you, you nailed that being in that list. So. That's pretty cool. I appreciate that. It was a friend who pointed me to it. So all of investing, a lot of it is stealing other people's ideas. Absolutely. So I'm happy for that. But this, it's been a huge position for me. I put a piece out on Friday, breaking down, and then earlier today, breaking down a little more. So not to pitch my own stuff, but I'd say listeners go do that. But I think we've covered the majority of it. I think so too. How, how big, if, you, if I may ask, how big of a position is it for you percentage-wise? It's maybe embarrassingly big. But look, I'm going to disclose nothing is investing advice. Everybody, right. the thing I'm about to talk about is pretty pretty much far out on the advanced spectrum. But the reason the position was so big for me was, again, because of the SPAC dynamics, you could always redeem for $20 per share. So let's just say Pershing was trading for $21 per share, Pershing Tontine, and you had that $20 position. You could take, let's say you went to the extreme and you took a 50% position in it, right? Your worst loss is actually, mark to market, it might trade a little bit below 20 in a real panic or something, but yeah. your worst loss was always gonna be about 5%, right? Because at the end of the day, you'd always be able to redeem for that $20 per share. Because I had that downside protection, and then again, reminding that options are risky, nothing's investment advice, I put several articles out there where your listeners can go see, but the volatility on this thing was absolutely off the charts. So the combination, it got pretty advanced, but the combination of the put option at $20 plus volatility, look, when I wrote this, like Tesla's volatility was 60 and for a while Pershing's volatility was a hundred. So well, for a cash shell, it, it was crazy. It was ridiculous. So you could buy- yeah, I, was, I was selling puts and also selling calls during, during that time. So you could buy the stock at 25, sell a pretty near-term call, get almost $5 per share of premium back, create the stock effectively at 20. And then if the stock ran into a deal, cool, you made, you sold a call at 25. So you made 20 to 25, a 25% return. If it didn't, you kept all the call premium and maybe I can found a great deal. So one of the reasons it was such a huge position was that downside structure. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. Anyway, this was, I think this was a really great overview of what is a complicated deal. There's going to be more things that come out. I'm sure you're going to be updating your your audience as well. With um, for, my, when is, do you know when this podcast is going to come out? I'm going to actually have this come out pretty like this week because it's so okay, that's, Yeah. So it's funny. Last uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, I did a podcast and we talked all about Pershing Square. 
and it yeah. was before the it was before they announced the umg deal and i was like oh no like when the umg deal came i was yeah, like yeah. the podcast is going to be pretty stale when it comes out but the good news about you putting it this week is june 22nd or 23rd is when they'll sign the uh, definitive agreement for umg and then i would guess persian comes out with a lot more information and we'll learn a lot more and that's when i'll probably do a follow-up post but the good news for your listeners is that's two weeks away so i think everything we see on this podcast will be yeah. timely and they can set some time aside june 22nd or 23rd to uh, and, and if they want to and if they want to get a sense of your take on it where could they go to to read yeah, my, my my website is yet another value blog dot I just switched to Substack, so it's yet another value blog.substack.com. Uh, my Twitter hand- handle is Andrew Rangely. If people want to find me on there, I, I post most of the stuff I write on there too. So those would be great places. And Andrew goes pretty deep in the weeds, and he's extremely generous with his time and very inter- interactive on Twitter. Andrew's a great resource if you are, from anyone who's a beginner to extremely advanced, amazing guy to follow. And then, of course, for listeners of the Intelligent Investing Podcast, as news progresses with this, being that I have a position for full disclosure. I'm sure I'll be talking about my views on it uh, as well. And, and they could be different than Andrew's. They might be similar. That's what makes the market. But Andrew, it was a pleasure to, to have you on and, and connect. And you're welcome back here anytime. Hey, look, actually, you know what? I'm going to add one more thing if I can. Sure. Play, no, please, the, other please. Thing, the other interesting thing about this is Amazon just bought MGM, the yes. global content company for eight and a half billion dollars. And that was a big multiple of EBITDA. And like music, I think music is a better business than movies. It's, it's, certainly, a, it's certainly a better business. And, People and, listen to the Beatles in 50 years from now, where if you have a movie that comes out, you don't even know they're going to watch it five years from now. Look, MGM's got some great library. The library they've got James Bond, they've got, they've got Rocky and Creed. Sure. But it falls off fast after that. Really quickly, you look yeah. at that versus music, how long dated it is and all that. And it, UMG, they're buying UMG cheaper than Amazon bought MGM. So I, I just think it's a great deal. I think it shows the strategic assets, but I appreciate your uh, invitation back onto the show. I'll have to take you up on that and we can be talking more about it. I know. I'm sure we could, we could probably talk about it. Pro- the problem with the two of us is if we really wanted to, I could have, I, I've done this before when I first started out, I had some three hour shows and they were ridiculous. We could probably talk about like the nitty gritty stuff for three hours and you could just read about it. Cool. All right. Hey, Andrew, great. Yeah. appreciate you having me on and we'll have to do this again. That would be great. All right. Take care. Have a good one, man. Uh, you too, man. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.